There's a children's book by the British author John Burningham, which tells about a young child who wants to know where her cat goes at night. She confronts her cat, who is dressed in a party outfit, just as she is supposed to be falling asleep and as he appears to be leaving the house. She asks if she can tag along, and he says, okay, but you have to get small. Magically, she's able to do just that, escaping out the cat door to follow him to a magical party on a rooftop. What I like about that story is that the scale shift just happens, and that's what makes it feel really enchanting. It's funny because in architecture, we think a lot about scale, but we often think about scale in relation to other human things. Like, maybe that door handle is overscaled relative to the size of the door, or maybe the window feels a little bit too small on a particular facade. But there's another way in which scale can be a truly enchanting experience. And some architects have explored what it means to say, go from the small scale of the model back to the large scale of the building in a way that informs the one with the other. Hi, I'm Marika Trotter. I'm history and theory coordinator and faculty here at SciArc. This podcast is about contemporary architectural issues and attitudes. It's organized by theme, which means that we have the option to connect unexpected things together and maybe rethink just by juxtaposition how we approach things within architecture, but also how architecture approaches things outside of itself. This episode is about scale. Scale is something that all architects are familiar with. We deal in scales. We produce drawings that are at particular scales. One eighth equals one foot, one quarter equals one foot, one inch equals one foot, true to scale, not to scale, etc. Some architects have even begun to explore the implications of scale models. Those little, playful, often deliberately inaccurate depictions of the way a larger building will be. What happens when you take the detailing that works on a model scale and translate it back into the real world? What kinds of questions can be asked about what we think the real scale is when we start to look at very large things or very small things, or when we imagine what it would be like to be the size of a teacup or the size of a mountain? In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Tom Wiscombe, AIA, who is the undergraduate program chair here at SciArc and principal of Tom Wiscombe Architecture. Tom's work involves creatively reimagining the role of models in architectural design. I'm also going to be talking to Dr. Yuande Pierce, who is a neuroscientist whose work investigates rare genetic neurological disorders. Finally, I'll be talking to Bill Bowes, a production designer and art director best known for his work on films like The Nightmare Before Christmas, James and the Giant Peach, Planet of the Apes, and Alien. In all cases, we'll be looking at the surprisingly fundamental ways scale inflects our imagination across a variety of disciplines and forces us to challenge our still too constrained understanding of the human scale in the world. Hi, I'm here with Tom Wiscombe, and I wanted to talk to you today about models. You're doing a studio on models, and I know it also deeply informs your practice. What about models do we need to freshly consider? I realized how important they were for my practice, and I realized that they had a kind of special quality to them that was beyond just using a model to kind of do 
iterations of a thing or prove out a thing or test the performance of a structure or test the look of a form, but that they, they started to have a kind of almost an, a kind of an inner life to them. And, and I have also noticed over the years, especially in the last few years, that I'm moving away from using renders to evaluate the work that we do in the office. I don't trust them really. <laughs> I feel like the render is more about composition of a, of a kind of hopeful or wishful image that may not be how you encounter the thing in the, in the world. But then a model is precisely something that isn't an accurate representation of the thing in the world. Exactly. So that's the, the playful and fun part of having that realization isn't just that they're more accurate, but that they have their own little world. And at this, at the, when, the minute you start miniaturizing something, it starts to have its own qualities. And it, some of those qualities come from, uh, come from producing it in a different way than you would produce uh, architecture at one-to-one -one scale, right? Like, so one thing we've noticed by having this bank of maker bots at the, at the office is that we have to divide things up into little components in order to print them on multiple printers. So that just kind of happened organically when we got these printers, and but now we're realizing it's starting to have an effect on our work uh, because we're automatically dividing stuff up into little pieces. So then that begs the question, how do you divide things up? And we decided a long time ago that you can't just chop things up like slicing a, a butter or a sausage down the line. So without even theorizing it or thinking about it, we started to design uh, things into parts as we were making these these models. We started to look at them more seriously and said like, you know, well, what if we just literally take these models as the building? And by literally, I don't just mean just sort of, you know, scan them in and put them in the computer and then start to add all the equipment and hardware and all the stuff that we associate with architecture, but rather literally try to figure out how to realize those models at one-to-one -one scale and retain their toy-like qualities. That was the birth of some ideas about what I call super components now, which are those very components made in the very small models uh, um, blown up to architectural scale. And then you start to think about what can happen and or how the architectural scale can, can be ambiguous. Uh, there isn't just this very serious architectural scale that's defined by metal panels and bricks and pieces of stone and, and all of those things. But suddenly you're like, well, I have the super component here. It's 60 feet long. How could we build something such that it still appears to be made out of 60-foot-long giant jigsaw pieces? It's a set of effects that are achievable because of certain logics at the model scale. They're still retained as effects, or the aim is to retain them as effects in the full scale or, you know, as, as realized piece. But they're not actually the pieces that you would have been able to think of if you had been thinking things at the original scale or at the full-size scale, nor are they pieces that are actually literally realized in the final piece, their effects. That's right. That's, that's crucial. They don't have to be literal components. I think the super component idea carries with it, because of its lack of literalness, it carries with it a flexibility of scale, which means that it's something that you can play with and keep as, as a, a defining concept whether you're dealing with a very, very large project or whether you're dealing with a small project. Or you don't know what the target scale is. I think that would be an effect that I would love to produce in architecture. You don't know, you literally don't know if it's a model of something at a larger scale, even as it stands there right in front of you in an urban condition. It also means that one is able to think about pieces of architecture as models for other pieces of architecture, right, at different scales. True. I guess in a way, 
that all architecture is a model, maybe for that in that way. Um, well, a model different than a precedent, though. So, so maybe we should unpack that a little bit. So, a model that I'm talking about is something that kind of bodies forth a particular structure, a particular object that has a particular world associated with it and a particular scale associated mm-hmm, with it. Mm-hmm, right. A precedent is something that you treat as a source. And you can take it apart, and you can take various components of it, but it's not something that carries with it a whole set of associations. In fact, in the history of architecture, when we've used precedents, and of course here at SciArc, we pay a lot of attention to precedents because we're a very discipline, a discipline-oriented school. The whole point is that you remove its context. Mm-hmm. You right. bring the object by itself, or even some certain abstraction or some certain reinterpretation of the object forward, and you lose the context. And for me, a model is actually something that carries with it a whole set of associations and a whole set of, of kind of scalar effects that stay with it. Right. Well, okay, so there's there are two things I can say about that. I, I think that's a really good point. You know, right now in my Cyric Vertical Studio where we've taken this subject on about how to theorize, and I'm calling it now a kind of general theory of models, how we can push models and try to understand better all the things that they can do for us in architecture or the things they're already doing for us. And in particular, we're, we're looking at model kits. So we've, um, to your point about precedents, we've taken on, I, I have um, 13 students and we have 13 precedents. And we have looked at those through, we've looked at those through model kit logic and through the inner world of model kits, which is a very particular kind of inner world too. It's different than just the architectural model. So the model kit is of course a kind of, I mean, one of the most obvious things about it, but coolest things is that you open a model kit and all of the different parts that that are there in the box in no way are the assembly that they imply and the, the morphology of the individual parts in no way imply how you'd actually build the thing at full scale. So like we have this Apache helicopter model that we keep looking at in there. And and of course, like half of the fuselage is a part, you know, but then at the same time, one helicopter blade is a part. So the parts are not Legos. They're not atoms. These are fully formed, what I would say, super components. So that's also what's always attracted me about model kits is they're just weird. Like they're assembled in the weirdest way with the weirdest components out of the weirdest materials. And that's that's partially to achieve certain efficiencies from the injection molding. Absolutely. So that's in a similar way to the way that we've used MakerBots in my office to, let's say, estrange the, the act of making a model. So too are model kits that way that through injection molding and the requirements of that, it puts in a different logic but an unfamiliar one and of course if you sit there rationally and think about it you're like oh yeah there's a you know there is an economy to it Mm -hmm. and all of that and that's helpful because it gets you out of thinking how the apache helicopter is built but at the same time it there's just this wonder about it you see these components i think you see that object in a whole different way once you've seen the way that it's parted out in an unexpected way so i brought that into the to the vertical studio this semester and and my students are doing a, a great job really interrogating architectural precedents, very serious business of precedents, and and making them into model kit. It also seems to me to be a way of kind of bringing an element of fantasy or an element of play or an element of delight into what is typically pretty serious. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. serious business. One thing we started doing is, is, is literally decontextualizing the project from its original time mm-hmm. and its original site and then putting it somewhere else and imagining it's in a different, you know, built maybe a different way. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really interesting. But then on top of that, also adding an entourage, which might be alien to the original, the original piece. 
you can't be a contemporary practicing architect and imagine that that you that you can ever understand a precedent that you found from the eyes of a person or an audience member of that piece from that era and that mm-hmm. time and that yeah. moment. We're yeah. always doing that to things, and I'm just making it more explicit through this process of making making them into kits. You're saying, all right, if we're going to treat this as something that can go into a model kit then that means that we're also thinking about it as something that can be treated architecturally. So it becomes a way of expanding the potential kinds of pieces or the potential kinds of concerns that we can handle in a disciplinary way. Yeah, exactly. The precursor to Enchanted Models, which is the, the model kit studio that we're doing now, uh, we, we did what was called the Snow Globe Studio last year. We get what a snow globe is, but if you think about it for 10 seconds, it's crazy. Let's say it's New York City. Um, you're going to keep the identity of New York City, and you're going to capture, you're going to basically slice it away from the earth in all known ways, and then you're going to reorganize and rescale differentially all of the various buildings and things and leave out half of them, increase double the scale of others, and add new alien ones that no one knows what they are. And you're going to reconstitute this identity of New York City within this thing and include its weather, its, its mm-hmm. nature, its mm-hmm. flora, fauna, everything is included in this globe. And as you say, a piece of its atmosphere even contained within, you still see that it's New York City. I love the idea of like taking a diorama and putting it on a site for instance, whole, yep. like putting it whole on the site. Yep. So, so you're not confusing ground and land, uh, right, where, mm-hmm. where a building just sort of stands somewhere on the surface of the earth, but rather you're designing the whole environment. So while, you know, while many of my projects don't maybe don't have like a plastic shell on the top like a snow globe, in my head they are snow globe-ish. But I think that's the point because one thing that we know is within the disciplinary range of architecture is not that we're ever going to affect the world at scale, right? That we're ever going to engineer direct technological solutions um, to the problems or the challenges that confront us, right? That's not what architecture does. Architecture models. It models possibilities and it models them in small, wonderful ways that then give us the imaginative capacity. And I think that in this post-human era where we can start to imagine that not everything in the world exists for us as humans. I think that you can think about the world in a completely different way. You can see Tom Wiscombe's models and the role that they play in his design thinking at www.tomwiscombe.com. Act 2. Dr. Yuande Pierce is a researcher at the Lundquist Institute at UCLA. She has a PhD in neuroscience and genetics, and she focuses on rare diseases of the brain. I wanted to speak to Yuande because she deals with both very large and very small scales simultaneously. On the one hand, she investigates DNA, the smallest building blocks from which we are made. On the other hand, she has to investigate massive data sets that track mutations across entire populations. You've made the focus of your career um, rare diseases of the brain. Right. How did you end up choosing to focus on that? I've always found brain development really interesting, how we go from a couple of cells fused together to the complex beings that we are. And as part of development, there are lots of things that can go wrong. So my interest in neurodevelopment then led me directly then into um, disorders of the brain. And actually, to be honest, one of the reasons why I went into looking at rare childhood brain diseases is because I was inspired by my professor back in university. Mm -hmm. And 
within a small community that works on rare diseases, actually, there's a lot more urgency to find cures. And there's a close relationship between the scientists and, and the families. And the families. I remember that so clearly when we had when we sequenced the hum- human genome in its entirety. And, you know, it seemed at that moment like custom tailorized medicine was just around the corner. I was actually working as a long-range planner at the time for Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And I remember I was helping them try to think about how their physical facilities and how their architecture would change in 50 years, 100 years in the future. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about, well, I don't maybe we won't even have medical institutions in the future beyond research centers. Maybe nobody will have to go for infusions at hospitals because we'll be treating people with these customized treatments at home. And really, it seems like progress has been so much more incremental and so much more fragmentary than we had first imagined. The theoretical promise seems really promising, you know, but actually, practically, I think one of the main challenges has been that you can't go straight to clinical trial with any of these developments. So they tend to start with a model. So whether that is a cellular model looking at individual cells being cultured in a dish or animal models, which have been hugely impactful in the field in terms of understanding how brain diseases um, develop. So I work a lot with a mouse model. Mm -hmm. So the thing about mice and humans is they are very different seemingly, but actually there's a lot of conservation between um, genes in humans and animals. And so as you were saying about the human genome being sequenced, the mouse genome has also been sequenced. And that means that you can identify genes that are conserved in both species. And what's interesting about it is that they do carry out you know, similar functions. So they both tend to um, have this kind of mirroring. So when you work with an animal model for, for example, there's a particular enzyme which is implicated in San Filippo syndrome, which I work on, that same gene is present in the mouse. So if you eradicate it in the mouse, then you can actually look at characteristics that then result from that gene being missing, as it would be in a human. But then eventually you need to think about translation and how you go from a mouse model to the human. And that's where a lot of the difficulties kick in because you're trying to, you know, transfer it over to be applicable to humans and we're not mice. And I was always struck by the scale issue that it seems like it's not such a big deal for researchers because they understand what you're talking about, these kind of genetic analogs that exist between people and mice. Mm -hmm. But from the outside, it seems crazy that you could be developing things and testing them in mice and then expecting them to work in humans. And it seems like it's the source of a lot of fake news, a lot of like fake news in medicine. 100%. Most studies where you have these breakthroughs that are reported, it's novel, they're novel findings, but they're novel findings that will be in an animal model usually. So that is the thing when you're thinking about scaling up. They are such a blessing, these models that we have, but I think that it's really important to keep it in context all the time. So as an example, the mouse model we have is really great because there are characteristics that you can easily quantify in the mouse that are similar to the human. I guess you could make the same the, the same case with a lot of like scale effects that sometimes something will do with the same move or something that looks the same at one scale will do something incredibly different at a different scale. And of course, we look at that a lot in architecture because we're 
constantly examining why a particular building might have some power versus another building that seems to have less or why something seems so magical and surprising when it's at the building scale, but maybe doesn't work as well when it's at the sculpture scale or vice versa. And it seems like one of those weird things in science that actually you can be the person who's doing the mouse model, let's say, and yet have it, like you were saying, a deep connection to the families and a deep connection to the other end, and yet not necessarily have that other set of knowledge to bring it all the way through translation to where it would be a practical treatment. So you ha- there's also a whole series of negotiations, I imagine, and communications and protocols and sort of how you hand off all the knowledge that you've accrued. Is that frustrating sometimes? Does it seem like it stuff gets lost? Um, it is. It can be frustrating because I think managing expectations for rare childhood diseases specifically, or any neurodegenerative diseases, there are often no treatments. So any research that you're doing, there's like this urgency behind it. And actually a really good experience when I was doing my PhD is we had these lab open days where parents would come to the lab. And when you're working in a lab as a scientist, you get really micro and you concentrate on your tiny protein that you're focused on and you forget the bigger picture often. And then you would have these parents who would come to the lab and ask you questions about the times, like when is this going to be a treatment? And suddenly you realize that a lot of the work you're doing won't necessarily help their children. It might help children in the future. Um, But that's frustrating because it's, it's that communication, I think, with the people that it's really affecting that is hard to gauge at the point where, you know, when you're in a lab working on developing a, a therapy, there are a lot of unknowns. And I find that kind of frustrating because you want to be able to see like the pipeline and where your research is going. And there are so many obstacles in the way. And again, it's in a, a model. So scaling up is, you know, you don't know until you've actually done it. And a lot of the work that we're doing isn't in clinical trial yet. It's the lead up to getting to the point where we could try it yeah. in humans. You're thinking maybe I will live long enough to see this come to some kind of fruition. But here I'm seeing cycles of children come through. Right. Yeah, that's got to be rough. That's yeah. got to be rough. But at the same time, it must make you super motivated. That's true, too. Yeah. It's um, a balance. And other colleagues in the lab, they would, some of them would be really against the idea of having people come and visit, parents come and visit, because it puts you in a very difficult situation that you might not feel like you have the words to really navigate um so I think for some people it's motivation for others it's not so much the case yeah like you you could dread it you could be like I don't have the answers for you and your child is gonna die and I've just found out that my experiment didn't work didn't work because there are loads of negative results that's an important thing to say as well like a lot of the avenues you explore lead to negative results which are useful but obviously negative results are not as you know, they don't get as much attention, but there is a lot of stuff that doesn't work. We've come so far and yet we still, it's so mysterious. And that I think comes back to what we were talking about before about the way this miraculous scientific breakthrough of the human genome completely mapped, the mouse genome completely mapped. There's so many cool things that we can do now. And yet we don't necessarily understand what our understanding means. And that must be a huge what what are some things that you wish you could tell people I think when it comes to how that research is designed and the impact it has I think it shouldn't just be scientists I think that collaboration between like an interdisciplinary approach is is really key especially when you look at something like CRISPR which is so powerful and how that could impact society in the future I think that 
the field would actually benefit from having social science or to think about ethics mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. um around CRISPR technology, for example. So CRISPR is a way of looking for specific genes, like snipping specific genes, because you're able to track sort of enzymes that are conciliatory, that have some kind of relationship with those. Um, an analogy is that it's like a word processor. So there are two main components for the CRISPR-Cas9 system. So the Cas9 is the enzyme that yeah. does the okay. cutting. The, cutting. Yeah. the key part of CRISPR, which is so clever, and we have bacteria to thank for this, a lot of these tools were found in bacteria or viruses, and it's completely changed the field. The second part is a guide RNA, which is like a complementary code to the genetic code you're interested in. So that allows it to find the place in the genome that you're interested in. In terms of having a big picture view, there's nothing that I find more useful than speaking to non-scientists about the work that I'm doing. So when I speak to like yourself or someone who isn't a scientist or my friends, I find it really um, helpful for me because there are really basic things that I often realize that I've completely overlooked <laughs> because you're so focused on something so specific. So I actually find it helpful looking at it from the other point of view and then in, in turn I think that it's very important to be able to communicate that back so I guess in terms of what I'd like people to know I think also I think what I will say is the sensationalization of some of the scientific findings I would encourage people to dig deeper into the research and I would encourage scientists to make that more feasible to be able to do so actually um, Naval is a cultural space in downtown LA and they do an, a series of assemblies which is a group that focuses on a particular topic and we're doing one about science in the media and the reason why myself and my co-leader um, of this group wanted to do that is because what we're doing is taking science stories from the media with a headline and presenting the original research and actually looking at the paper and what it entails. And then by doing that and inviting people who aren't scientists to take part in understanding and picking apart that paper, then they're able to contribute to the conversation. Oh my gosh, I think we should do that in architecture too. It, you, yeah. There's so many articles that come out all the time about things on the urban scale or things um, having to do with particularly sustainability right now or kind of public good or things like that. And they, they sound good or they sound bad, depending on the, you know, <laughs> the, the kind of the, accol the accolades or the accusations um, of the article. But it, there's such a disconnect between that and what's actually happening for somebody who's informed about the field. I was just thinking as a sideline to what we've been talking about, about cells and mouse models. Have you come across organoids as well? No. Mini brains? Okay, no. I really want to tell you about oh my gosh. those because okay. they are. Okay. Brain organoids or organoids in general? Yeah, they're pretty cool. They're um, 3D models of organs. So they're basically like mini organs. So we have been growing brain organoids which are 3D complex structures of cells which self-organize the way the brain does in development. And they're remarkable because they form specific layers as they would in the brain. It was in the media a few weeks ago about how one of the newest developments, findings about these brain organoids is that they actually do communicate. The neurons are able to communicate with each other. So if you think about what brain function is and how our brain cells fire and talk to each other, it gets you to think about consciousness and yeah, thinking. So yeah, yeah. it, asks, it begs the question, are these brain organoids conscious? 
and questions like that. And right, which raises ethical questions. Which raises, raises and ethical questions, and that did, those questions did come up when um, this paper was published. Um, but I would say, it's again, it's a model, and because it's an isolated brain organoid, um, you need to have like senses to be able to properly process things, and it doesn't have a body. <laughs> uh, and I think that's what's... I really celebrate about that kind of research whilst keeping it in context and not making those leaps to, okay, it's conscious. But how amazing is it that that these brain cells develop and communicate with each other? I think that's, I think it's amazing. Well, in terms of my brain function, I feel like it's been enlarged by this conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming Thank in to so talk to me. Thank you so much for having me. That was really fun. You can learn more about Yawande's work on her monthly podcast, Sound Science on Dublab Radio, and check out her articles at MassiveScience.com. Next up is production designer and artistic director Bill Bowes. He's known for meticulously crafted small models that contain entire imaginary worlds. These then become the basis for films that stick in the public imagination like no other, including The Nightmare Before Christmas and James and the Giant Peach. He was on set for his next film, so he joined us by phone. So you've worked on these iconic uh, movies that we see at a particular scale. We see them at the scale of the screen. And they have a larger-than-life quality because they draw us into an entire made-up world, um, a world that is also highly detailed. But when you're working on these little miniatures, they're quite small. What does that feel like? How do you decide uh, how, what kind of detail to put in? It's totally made up. You know, we'll just say it's, it's one-to-one, like a, a person standing is six feet tall. But on Nightmare, particularly in Nightmare for Christmas, the puppet of Jack is 17 inches tall. So if you imagine all the sets being scaled to him, uh-huh. and to create the models that we shot on, we create models of those. So we basically shrunk Jack down quarter scale. So there's, it's, a, it's a quarter of 17 inches, which I don't even know what it's like, three, three inches or something, three, three and something. So we made these little models to create the bigger models. So it's really quite an experience to work on that movie. And we basically just made up stuff. That's what, what makes it so fun. You can just make up whatever scale you want. Why would you do that, though? So you have a 17-inch... A puppet um, that's the scale that's the scale of Jack and then you shrink it down to a quarter scale is that simply logistical no it's just a design process it's like to create the design of those sets you have to make a smaller model that the set set builders can make from right so he's basically squished Jack down to a quarter of his height and made these little models so there's all these models that you're working with and that's just for the design process, right? Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's a it's model like of a, a model. It's like a sketch model. I call them like sketch models. They're really rough, but they basically show the scale with the 17-inch jack once it's blown up. That's what we played with. And both on Nightmare and Peach, we did the same thing. And I think there's pictures in some of the books, some of the Nightmare books out. You can see little models. And when you look at them, imagine that those little ones, the little teeny ones, were blown up four times that size, and then that's what we shot. That's what you saw on camera. And so, and so basically, it's, it's very analogous to what we do in architecture, right? Because in, in architecture, we, we do typically create models of the eventual 
so-called full-scale piece. Yeah. Um, but here, what's what's a, what's fascinating is that there's a whole other level of scale because you've got the the little tiny, let's say, mock-up model or the design model um, from which the eventual shoot model is composed. But then you've also got the additional scale of how it's being experienced in film terms or um, in movie terms, which is blown up massively on giant screens. Yeah. You know, I've worked in live action and stop motion animation, and they're both completely different. But in, in live action, you work with more of an architectural scale, which could be eighth of an inch equals a foot or a quarter of an inch equals a foot or half of an inch equals a foot. And that's what I'm working with right now as we speak. I'm working on an eighth inch scale model of a set. And then that gets converted into full size. So that's a pretty easy system that most architects use. But when I was talking about um, Nightmare Before Christmas, we weren't really using a, a standard architectural scale. We just shrunk it down so it worked for us in the design process. That makes total sense because you're not trying to create human-scale stuff. You're trying to create other worlds altogether. So it's not about trying to match an eighth of an inch equals a foot like we would do um, in uh, English measurement here in the United States. It's simply about, all right, you have a world that is scaled already for a 17-inch puppet, and then you just need to shrink that down enough so that you can work out the design. And whatever that ends up being, it ends up being. So it's kind of like a world within a world. It's really interesting. You, you're following exactly what we were doing. So we basically had a room for these little cardboard models because every shot in Nightmare is, is a different set, basically. Some of them are reused, but we had some specialty shots, some forced perspective shots that were created just for one shot in that movie. And they were all conceptualized in a much smaller scale because you can do them quick. They're not full size. Right, and you're talking about actually creating uh, particular sets that are just intended for one shoot, one perspective. Absolutely. And what's what's cool about animation is since you're not dealing with a full-size building, you know, you can make them rather quickly and they come straight from your brain, from your mind when we did Nightmare Before Christmas because... You could bust out a really quick sketch model, I call them, and then give it to the shop, and they build it full size, which is, you know, it could be the size of a room and as small as a closet, but it's really fun. And when you get into architecture scale, like the quarter inch and eighth inch live action movies is what I do, I'm doing right now, it's, it sort of is its own thing. It's not as quick. Like, door jams have to be 6'8". You know, there's a standard height to most stuff. So in that regard, it's just a, it's a whole different game. Architecture is is notoriously not quick. So it's funny to hear you talking <laughs> about this. <laughs> it's funny to hear you talking about the difference between building a model for something that doesn't have to exist at the human scale ever um, yeah. and building a model for something that eventually is going to have to be, you know, a door jam and a door, and a window, and a chair, and a room, and a blah, 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 that that humans actually have to be part of. It's almost like the human being and the human scale, that kind of medium, medium level of not giant and not tiny, kind of turns the fun a little bit down and turns the slowness way up. Absolutely. I love the fantasy stuff that's quick, but also you can do it in in quarter-inch and eighth-inch scale. We made some crazy sets 
in my times, you know, but, but they're made for real scale people. So, I mean, if I'm doing like a kitchen set, it's pretty boring, but if I'm doing like a weird cave thing, you know, that's fun. But it, I guess it just depends on what you're doing and what scale you're using. One of the things that we are, we seem to be grappling with um, in, in my own field and in, in architecture is um, a sense of feeling um, futile, almost futile in advance. So it seems like some of the things that the world is facing right now that have to do with the kind of architectural scale of massive urban population swells and scarce resources and depleting energy sources and global warming and all of these things, um, they begin to feel, I think especially for younger people, um, insurmountable. And one thing that's cool about thinking about the world as something that we make and understanding that process in making worlds the way you do um, is that it's a way of understanding actually what we are capable of doing if we set out to do so. I'm in Vancouver right now working on a movie and they've got so many cool buildings going up that are just so such pieces of art. They kind of remind me of gesture drawings, you know, but they're huge and they're going up like all the time. It's really beautiful to see art direction put into actual functional civic buildings, you know, for me from an artist standpoint. So I totally understand what you're saying. And also there's the kind of freedom that comes with realizing that our imaginations don't exist at individual scales. Our bodies may be stuck in the medium scale of human life, but we're capable of imagining very vast things from very tiny mock-ups. I see so many worlds and just ordinary objects, you know? Like there's a cup on my glass on my table right now that looks like it would be a really cool building. You know, and I think I think like some early engineers and artists and stuff, they would look at earthbound objects like fruits and apples and and uh, just everyday objects and and basically design from those things as inspiration. Um, and I really love that expression that you just used, they're earthbound objects, right? They have utility to them. And you can still imagine how they could inspire things that have the kind of excess that we associate with great works of art. There's a book, I think it's called Earth Forms and Nature, I think. It's an old book, like Victorian pictures of ferns, um, eggs, all kinds of weird stuff. And it's a book I always have around for inspiration, because there's so many cool forms and shapes and inspirational pieces in that book. I bring it everywhere I go. It's really cool. So, yeah, I'm inspired by everything, nature and everything. I think that's the power of being somebody who's a creative uh, individual, is that actually you can be inspired by everything. It's just presenting to the world your interpretation of things and... If I had to put my finger on what people have that have a genuine enthusiasm for, uh, for making and for bringing new ideas uh, to the table, it's just that. It's that kind of attitude towards the world. I get to make cool stuff. The Ark was produced by Shelley Holcomb and the Southern California Institute of Architecture. Story editing by Kathy Huey at Our Story Productions. Music by James Thomas Marsh. I'm Marika Trotter. More stories next month here at The Ark.